pray once more. Father, we pray to you in order to depend on you, Father, because we are a helpless people. We need your grace every step of the way. And Father, we need your grace right now in order to engage with your word, to hear you speak from your word. God, please send the Spirit. Come in power, effect change in us that will lead to change in others and then change in others. May these words, this truth resound from this pulpit and may it make a difference in our lives and the lives of others. God, now, Father, there are distractions. There are many things to distract us. There are things that are in our minds, desires in our hearts, Lord, distractions in this room. Even, Father, please, may you help us to fight, fix our minds on Christ this morning and our hearts, God, take our hearts and plant them in you. We need you, God. Please use your word to convict where that is needed, to encourage, to give hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't need to tell you that the human heart is arrogant. It loudly and forcefully claims, I have rights and I deserve better than this. The human heart balls up its fists and kicks its legs when these so-called rights have been violated and denies any suggestion that it might be wrong in its estimation. The human heart believes that it deserves to be happy and it will justify the pursuit of whatever activity makes it happy, no matter who says it's wrong. Whether it's family that says it's wrong, friends, government, or even God. The human heart will exaggerate suffering to get pity. It will downplay responsibility to get comfort. It will twist words and disregard context to justify its evil desires. It will claim that certain laws were written without extenuating circumstances in mind. The human heart will take the Bible and its claims and will say that its message doesn't transcend culture and time. It's irrelevant. The human heart will lie to be praised and lie to be seen in a certain light. Unrestrained, the human heart is tenacious and it will fight tooth and nail for what it desires and think that this is perfectly right and healthy and good. But it was mankind who Moses referred to before the flood in Genesis 6-5, saying, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Those are some qualifiers, aren't they? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Our hearts have deceived us, church. Our hearts have deceived us into believing the lie that we deserve to be happy and we have the right to do whatever makes us happy. It's a lie. It's a lie because our sin, our heart desires sin, and our sin is against a holy God, 
a good God, a gracious God who has given us life. The very God who has given us our lives is what our sin is against, is who our sin is against. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to hear a speaker at a conference, and he was answering the question in his message, why does a loving God allow suffering and death? I'm sure you've heard this question. It's one that skeptics believe kind of is the nail in the coffin against Christians. Not so, but they ask the question, why does a loving God allow suffering and death? And so this speaker was answering the question. And his answer to the question was sobering. He said that we are sinners, and because we are sinners, we don't deserve to have the lives that we have. Because we're sinners, we, we don't deserve to be alive because our sin is against this good God, this holy God who's given us our very lives. And we've spurned his love. We've spit in his face with our sin. We've drugged his glory through the mud. As sinners, we should all be dead, experiencing just punishment. So in reality, the question that this speaker was addressing or answering that day, why does a loving God allow suffering and death? Instead of that question, really we need to be answering the following question, which is this one. Why does a loving God allow blessing in life? When you factor in sin, Why does a loving God allow blessing in life? If if there weren't sin in the equation, then, then yeah, ask the question, why does a loving God allow suffering and death? But sin changes the game entirely, doesn't it? Because our world is racked with sin, because there is sin in our hearts, because we're surrounded by people who have sin in their hearts, who have sinful natures, then the question we should be asking is, why does loving God allow blessing in life? The fact that we don't deserve to live because of sin says something about the gravity of our sin, doesn't it? The fact that we don't deserve to live because of sin says something about the severity of iniquity. This morning we are going to get a glimpse into how God views sin. How does God view sin? And I'm praying that this will affect us. It will affect how we view life. It will affect how we view ourselves and affect how we view God. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5, 1 through 11. Most likely a story you are familiar with, but I'm going to draw some important points out of it. Acts 5, 1 through 11. I'll read the text. Yeah, You'll follow along with me. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Why, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. 
Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Sobering, like I said. There are three points I want to gather from this text of Scripture. The first one is I want to look at the lust of approval. Number two, the lie of hypocrisy. And then the love of judgment. Okay? The lust of approval, the lie of hypocrisy, and the love of judgment. Let's get in the context a bit before we, we jump into chapter 5. Before we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, chapter 4 has the infant church in Jerusalem claiming that all they owned belonged to the church as common property. So that the people that had been saved while there at Pentecost could have the things that they need. According to verse 34 of chapter 4, there was no one in the church who was in need because those in the church owned, who owned land and houses were selling them and bringing the proceeds to lay at the disciples' feet to be distributed to those who required assistance. So although there were these thousands from other other lands, other countries, other regions who had come for Pentecost, they were saved there, right? Without the things that they owned, the church was selling its property, lands, houses, so that everybody could have what they needed. And Luke, the author of Acts, gives us an example of one man who gave in this generous way. Look at verse 36 of chapter 4. It's Barnabas, right? Barnabas is revealed as the one who has rightly sold his land and given the entire amount to be used for the needs of the church. He's, he's doing it right. He is the one, in contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, who has given generously. He sold his property and he gave without deceit, but lovingly, so that people could have what they needed. So when we come to this first point, the lust of approval, and five Chapter 5, verse 1, it's important that we note that the word that that sentence begins with is but. It signifies a sharp contrast between Barnabas and now Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, who gave generously and without deceit, and Ananias and Sapphira, who gave out of their lust for approval. Ananias and Sapphira, along with the other landowners in the church, sold their property and gave the needs to the body. However... Ananias and Sapphira did not lay down uh, the entire sum of the money they had received from selling their land. But they gave the portion that they gave as if it were the entire amount that they received from the sell. They gave it to the apostles to be used for the good of the church, but it says they gave a portion and they held back some of it for themselves, but they gave it as if it were the entire amount. 
Verse 2 tells us that Ananias, with his wife's full knowledge, kept back some of the money for himself. He then took the remainder of the money and placed it at the apostles' feet as if it were that entire amount. What motivated Ananias to do such a thing? The contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira strongly implies that the motivation for doing what he did was about gaining the reputation of a very generous person, a man of spiritual nobility. He so greatly sought the approval of the community of believers and maybe even more so the approval of the apostles themselves that he tried to deceive. Deceive them into believing he was something he was not. This was Ananias and Sapphira's first sin. The sinful desire of men's applause. We can relate, can't we? Isn't this the same heart of Saul in 1 Samuel 18, right? Uh, David has slain Goliath, right? He killed the Philistine with the, uh, that one stone, God was, was there with David and David killed Goliath and, and they come back to Jerusalem and what's happening, the women of Israel are dancing and they're singing in the streets saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, Saul hates this song, doesn't he? He hates this song because it exalted David over him. He wanted the esteem and the respect and the prestige and the honor. And the people of Israel were giving it to David over him. Lust of approval. When we think about Ananias and Sapphira, I think it's easy for us to to drag them off to the gallows, right? Pretty quickly. Because, you know, of the context in which we see things happening. You know, they're struck down dead. But we have been there so often. We have had the same desire for approval that they have. As a means of application of this sermon, I want you to start thinking on a regular basis. I think God wants you to start thinking uh, this way on a regular basis. Start asking yourself the question, why do I do what I do? Why do I do what I do? The small things and the big things, why? What's my motivation in doing it? I mean, because there is a reason There's an intention and a motivation for everything that we do. There's nothing nothing that we do that does not have an intention or a motivation behind it. So start asking yourself, why did I do that? Or, Or when you want to do something, why do I want to do that thing, say that thing? Push the why question. I think we don't ask the why question nearly as much as we should because we know what we're gonna find there. We're going to find that we're worse than we think we are. But you know, I had a, I had a conversation with a brother this week talking about that. We're afraid to, to find out that we're as bad as we really are because we're so bent on keeping a certain reputation in other people's eyes and in our own eyes that we don't want to ask the why question. But when we get to the bottom of our sin and see ourselves for as bad as we really are, then that makes it so we see the gospel for as rich as it really is. Right? I, I, gotta, I was convicted this week. I'm always trying to justify my evil desires somehow. You know? Oh, well, that just popped into my head. You know, I didn't nurse that thought. Right? I wasn't unfolding it in my mind. It just popped into my head. I can't, I can't help that, right? 
But as you know, if, if, you've, if you've sat under the, the preaching of this church for a while, we, we know and believe that came from you. It came from your heart. You are that guy. You are that lady. You are that bad. But if you're in Christ, that means that Christ is that much sweeter because you're forgiven of all of that. But we do that, don't we? We need to start asking the why question so when we get to the bottom of the why question, we can run to the gospel and find the joy of sins forgiven. You've got to ask yourself questions like, why did I pray that long prayer in Bible study? Why, why is it that I did raise my hand to answer that question in Sunday school? Why is it that I chose to wear that shirt? Small thing, right? But still motivated. Why is it that you shared what you learned from your Bible reading this week with another brother or sister? Did you, did you do it so that you could be seen in a certain light, to be thought well of? Why is it that you close your eyes while the preacher is praying? Or why is it that you sing in church on Sundays? So it's not wrong to do any of those things. It's not wrong to sing. Certainly it's not wrong to close your eyes. It's not wrong to raise your hand and answer questions in Sunday school. But so often we can have the wrong motivation behind those things. We gotta ask the question, why did I post that on Facebook or Twitter? So easy to do that, right? On our phones, on the keyboard, it's there. Why did I do that? Or why do I want to write that and post that? You know, uh, yeah, I think you may have heard Dan refer to the, the kind of new um, phenomenon that is the humble brag. You guys know what a humble brag is? No, I'll tell you what a humble brag is. Uh, because I've seen, I've kind of looked back uh, in my history and see a lot of this going on, and it's, uh, it's humbling to me. Uh, the, the humble brag is this. Is it, here's a definition, okay? And we do this on so, social networking sites like Facebook and Twitter a lot. A form of self-promotion often delivered in a terse one or two fragmented sentences on social networking sites. A typical and popular approach is to use a disingenuous complaint about something, a self-deprecating statement, or a comment on something completely innocuous as a vehicle to deliver the real message, which invariably shows the person in a favorable light. Okay, so what's an example of things we do like this to be seen uh, by people in better light or to be approved of. Here's an example of a humble brag. Graduating from two universities means you get double the calls asking for money. They do really get pushy, don't they? Okay, complaining about the fact that people are calling you asking for donations from two universities, but you just told everybody that you graduated from two universities, right? Seemingly complaining about one thing so that you can get the real the, the real reason why you're writing that out there so people can think of you, wow, two, I didn't know we graduated from two universities. What about this one? Just got through with my first marathon. Anyone, anyone know what's the best home remedy for soreness? Oh, wow, man, he must be really sore. Oh, but he also did just run a marathon. My goodness, I'm sitting here on the couch with a remote in my hand, you know? What about this one? You can... I can, I can see myself writing something like this. At the airport, headed for the Bahamas. Man, these TSA regulations are a pain. Oh, he's going to the Bahamas. Okay, yeah. I, it, we do stuff like this. It comes out of our hearts. We, we, you know why that's, it's funny? Because it's true, and you do it too. 
And it's, it's, really, it's really sobering because it shows us that our, our hearts can be so sly and so sneaky when it comes to getting what they want, right? I want approval. So uh, I can't really you know, walk into a room and say, glory to me, but I can do other things, right? I mean, people, oh, he's so arrogant. If he, glory to me, he's so arrogant. But you can cer- certainly do things that are small, less noticed, right? That people think, man, yeah, okay, I, didn't, I didn't know that about that person. And they're not thinking, oh, he's arrogant. He's prideful, right? What do you do that's, that's sly, deceptive, sneaky to get approval for yourself? We, we ask the why question. We may find that we want to be seen and respected as one of higher spiritual stature than we truly are. It may be that you want to impress your family. Maybe you want to even impress your children, your, your parents. Maybe it's the leadership of the church that you want to impress. Your, your coworkers, your boss, right? Friends on Facebook, whatever it is. And sinful desires. They're sinful desires. The right desire for us has been given in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, when Paul writes, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to be pleasing to the Lord. And Paul also writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines the heart. Not as pleasing men, but speak about God. We speak to please him. Listen, even if Ananias and Sapphira pulled it off, right, and, and no one ever found out that they lied about giving that amount of money as if it were the entire amount they received, even if they got past and got through and everybody thought well of them because of it, God would still know. God would still have known. And so it is with many of our sins we commit. No one ever finds out with, with a lot of the sins that we commit, no one ever finds out that the lust of our hearts led to us to lie or to do some other sinful thing so that we can get approval. But God knows. God sees. We can't hide anything from him. And knowing that should bring us to a greater conviction, but that greater conviction should bring us to a greater delight in the cross and a faster pace in running to the cross remembering everything we've been given there. Church, I should remember something. We are called not to reveal the impressiveness of ourselves, but we are called to reveal and point to the impressiveness of God. He's truly impressive, isn't he? Meditate on the impressive reality that everything that makes you impressive is given to you by God. And all that he is is far more impressive than anything you are. And it was given to you by him anyway. We are to be road signs pointing to the impressiveness of God. You know, what happens when, um, whenever there's something that we want to be known for? And we know we're, we're good at that thing. We've, we have worked hard at being good at whatever that is. And then someone comes along who is better than we are at that thing that we want to be known for. What do we do? Most of the time, we try harder, right? Because we want to be 
above that person. We, we want to show uh, everybody else that, that we can rise to the occasion, right? But sometimes what happens? Somebody, sometimes somebody comes along that is better at that thing than you are, but way better than you are, and just blows you out of the water, right? There, there's one of two things that we can do at that time. One, one of two things we often do. We can either, oh man, recognize the talent, recognize the ability and say, and tell people, you got to see this. Or we can wallow in self-pity and despair. Okay? Well, listen, God is always more glorious than you are. And his glory always blows yours out of the water. Okay? You stand yourself up next to God, he is always infinitely more glorious, right, than you are. And everything good that you've been given, it's been given by God anyway. So you can wallow in self-pity, Right? You can wallow in, in despair, or you can choose to point to the impressiveness and point other people to the impressiveness of this God who is that glorious. And that's what we're called to do. Yeah, have you read that book uh, that's in the library? It's one of my favorite books to read to my kids. Uh, Full Moon Rising. Have you read that book? It's this book, it's a story, it's a fun little story about um, the moon and how the moon is, is an arrogant, boastful character, right? He's a uh, he, uh, he loves how he shines so brightly at night and, and how astronauts have danced across his face. And he's, he's this braggart, right? And at the end of the story, he finds out that the light that he shines isn't his own. And so he cries. He weeps. And, and he kind of has this transformation that takes place, though, when he realizes, okay, my light comes from the, from the sun. So instead of bragging about my, my light being great, I'm going to start pointing to the sun as the one who gives me my light. And so every night, it says, every night, it's his new delight to make his boast in the sun. And at the end of the story, the author draws our attention to the fact that everything good we have, anything we have that's impressive, it's all been given to us by God. So our, our task, our responsibility, our joy is to then point everyone to the one who's given us what we have, just like the moon did to the sun. Here's the thing, church. That should be what we do. But this desire for uh, approval is, it's tricky. It's tricky because it's not like we can just stop caring about what people think. You can't do that. You might think, oh, okay, so I have a lust for approval. Then I'm just going to stop caring what people think altogether. Can't do that, right? Uh, It would be nice for you to start showing up at every public place you go to with sweatpants, and stop using silverware when you eat, okay? That, that might be, uh, I don't know, maybe that's like a desire you have, you know, kind of a, a fantasy you think about, but you can't do that because we're also called to be on mission, to reach the lost. We're also called to build up the church in love, to count others as more significant than ourselves. So we can't just stop caring about what people think, but we can change the priority, Okay? We can make it so that all of our consideration about other people, all our thoughts about other people, all our uh, desires in relationship to other people come underneath God, are informed by his word, so that people become um, those we love and we respect and we think about unto the glory of God. That's what it has to be. You can't just forget about people altogether and do what you want, but you've got to yield up your ministry to people under God and his reign in your life. 
And you've got to have your love for them, your consideration of them be informed by the word of God. So be careful that you don't go to that extreme. Because we've got to remember what has God said, right? He's supreme, isn't he? He's preeminent. So we have to ask ourselves, what has God said about the approval of man? Well, he says, that should not be your God. The approval of man should not be your God. It should not be your idol. But you do need to love people and consider what, what offends them, consider what blesses them, right? And follow my word as you love them unto my glory. But we've got to ask ourselves, what, what has God said? What does God think, right? It's so simple, isn't it? Just to stop ourselves and say, okay, what has God said about this? What does God think about this? Because he is the one who gave me my life. He is the one who sent his son to die for me. He is the good God that loves me with every breath that I take, I know I'm loved by him, right? So what has this God said about this thing, right? So we need to ask ourselves, what has God said about this? And we need to ask ourselves, who is God? He is that faithful God. He is that loving God. He is uh, the God that gives me grace, uh, that makes me to stand in grace, that doesn't waste anything in my life so that I am blessed by him, so that I enjoy him. It's that God who has said this, so that you'll want to do what he has said. Lust of approval. But we see them also do more than that. And an ice and sapphire, that is. They move from the lust of approval to the lie of hypocrisy. The lie of hypocrisy was their second sin, the outward manifestation of the lust for approval. In verse 3 of this morning's text, the apostle Peter, to whom Ananias had taken the money, calls Ananias out. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter identifies Ananias' sin as a lie to the Holy Spirit, a lie against the Holy Spirit. See, instead of stopping his lust in its tracks, Ananias lets it give way to more sin by lying to Peter. And Peter says, you're not just lying to man, you're lying to God. See, nowhere do we read that the community of believers in Jerusalem were required to give everything they owned to the church. We don't read that anywhere. Their giving was voluntary, just like our giving is to be voluntary. So, It wasn't like Ananias was forced to sell his property and give all the proceeds to the church. But because he wanted to save a little vacation money for Sapphira and himself, he kept some of the money from the sale. And he made it seem as though it was the entire amount. All of what he did was voluntary. Here's what Peter says in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? So he wasn't forced to do what he did. He did it voluntarily. Peter's saying here, hey, listen, it would have been fine for you to um, give just a portion of the money to the church and kept back some of it for you and your wife. That would have been fine. It was was your, I mean, God gave that to you. It was your choice to make. You know, we, we weren't forcing you to do that. So he's saying, you did this voluntarily. You can't blame anybody about this. You are not coerced or forced. This came from you. However, 
Instead of doing that, instead of telling the truth and keeping some money and making it obvious and clear to everyone, Ananias chose to lie, thinking that he would be exalted in the eyes of the church. And he lied not only to the apostles, but to God himself. And isn't that true of every lie? Isn't every lie a a lie against God? Because he's the one who made this world. He's the one that made you. He's the one that has given us his word and his law. And he's the one that holds everything together. Every, Every lie is a lie against him, first and foremost. And Sapphira also shared in this sin when she came to the apostles after her husband in verse 8 and lied about the amount that they had given to the church. You see, in lusting after approval, Ananias was not seeking to please God. And in lying about the amount of money they had given to the church, he directly offended God. It reminds me of David and the whole story with him and Bathsheba. Sin led to sin, led to sin, led to sin. As I read that story last time that I read it, I, I thought it was, so, it was sad and sobering at the same time because he was there on that rooftop, should have been out at war, but he was there on that rooftop and he saw Bathsheba bathing across the way on another rooftop. And there he could have run, right? He could have been like Joseph with Potiphar's wife and just gotten out of there. But no, lust conceived in his heart. He nursed it, and then it led to him commanding one of his servants, go get that woman and bring her to me. And then adultery was committed, right? Then he tries to hide the fact that um, she's pregnant with his baby by trying uh, to get Uriah back from war and setting things up with he and his wife so it looks like it's actually his child and not David's. And then it eventually leads to him giving the command to have Uriah put on the front line so he'll be murdered, or so that he'll be killed. So you see all these occasions when David could have run. He could have run back to the truth of God's word. He could have remembered what God had said, but sin led to sin. Lust conceived and gave birth to sin, and then more sin, and then more sin, and then finally murder. It doesn't have to be that. Oh, pray, church, that you would, the Lord would help you see your sin. Pray. Try me, test me, Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me, right? Isn't that what David prayed in an earlier time in his life? See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, we, we've, we've got everything we need. And, in Christ, because we've been saved, we've got everything we need to say no to sin. You, you can't say, I can't. The circumstances were, were, too, um, they were too hard. The circumstances were, were too um, temptuous. You can't say that because you've got the Holy Spirit. You've got a new heart that loves God and has the ability to obey God. You've got the Word of God. You've got the church to help you, right? You've got all of these resources God promising you grace all the time. You don't have to keep, you don't have to act as though you are chained to sin. You aren't chained to sin. You are free, free to live a life for holiness, free to live a life for God because of what Christ did on your behalf and for you, saving you from the power of sin. 
makes me think, this, this heart makes me think of the Pharisees that Christ spoke of in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just flip back there real quick. We'll look and see a similar heart to that of Ananias and Sapphira in Matthew 6, 1 through 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you, have, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you go pray, pray and go into your closet. Close your door. Pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Say, that's the same heart as, as Ananias and Sapphira, the one that desires that approval and that goes to great lengths to get that approval. It's the same heart that you and I have whenever we are trying to get approval. But notice the promises that are given here by Jesus. Your Father who is in heaven will reward you, right? Ananias, you should have believed that. Ananias, you should have... You should have remembered that reward comes from God. Yeah, you might be approved by man. They might think well of you. But your father who is in heaven, right? Remember, he's, this is the father who is in heaven. He's not limited by the resources of this world. This father who is in heaven will reward you. God is a greater rewarder than any person's approval will be. Do you believe that? And the reason why you get reward is because of his grace to you in Christ Jesus, right? So think about these things, church. The reward of God is so much greater than the reward of approval. That's, that's the way we fight our desires, right? That's, why you, that's the way you fight the lust for approval is by telling yourself there's something better that God's going to give. I have this desire. Will will approval be good? Yes, for a moment it will be. Empty, but yes, there will be some happiness initially. It won't be long. It will be an empty happiness, but there will be some pleasure there, definitely. But what's better than that? The reward of the God who is in heaven. Fight your desires, your evil desires, with greater desires, with something that is better, far better than what sin promises. So what lies have you told or are telling to deceive others into thinking you're more spiritual than you truly are? It doesn't have to be like, it doesn't have to be like the Pharisees, you know, it doesn't have to be you um, taking out a fat wad of cash and just counting it while the offering plate is going down, you know? doesn't have to be that obvious. 
But again, our hearts are subtle. They're deceptive. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's that you just kept your mouth shut, right? Maybe you didn't say anything at all, but, but you should have, and keeping your mouth shut about something leads other people to think well of you because you didn't say anything to correct them, right? I mean, we, we did this in junior high and high school whenever the teacher would ask, who did their homework? You know, you kind of hide behind the person that's in front of you, one of those. <laughs> you just don't say anything, right? And you lead people to believe that you've done something good so they'll think well of you. What is it? You know, a further point of application is found, I think, in the fact that, as we've talked about so often here at Calvary Bible Church, lust begins in the heart and it extends itself into the sins that we choose. And so, not only did Ananias and Sapphira sin with lust, but lying as well. Lust and lying, it starts in the heart. Let's not forget that. Sin and righteousness are matters of the heart. That, therefore, you have to apply the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel to your heart first. You can't just stop yourself lying, but lust for approval in your heart. That's not, that's not pleasing to the Lord, just to clean up the outside like a Pharisee. That's why you've got to ask the why question. I'm just going to go back to that again. You've got to see that your sin starts here. When you see that your sin starts here, then, okay, sin is more than just what people see on my outside. It's what God sees every time he looks deep within. And if you understand that, that sin is not only those sins of the heart, but it's also uh, the depth at which Um, we're scared to tell people? Do you ever have thoughts like that? Things that pop into your mind? Thoughts that are there and you think, if anybody ever knew that that thought entered my mind, I would be devastated. But God saw it. God saw it. And he matters most. And yet, he sent his son to pay for it. And yet, he sent his son to to take your place if you've trusted in him so that your sins are from you. They're they're away from you as far as the east is from the west. You are that bad, church. The gospel is that great. I, I, I love the quote from John Newton. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. If you only stop at the outside, you'll never get there. You'll never get to, I'm a wretch. You have to get to, I'm a wretch. You know, they, in some circles, they've changed the song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the song, uh, song sound that it saved a wretch like me. They changed it to, saved a one like me. They, in some circles, they didn't like that wretched. That makes us sound like we're really bad. We are really bad. So keep the wretch in there and know that that's you. But that just means that the sacrifice of Christ means that much more than it did before when you didn't think you were that wretched. Don't let yourself stop at the outside, church. Ask the why question. Get to the bottom of your sin so that you can get to the pinnacle of Christ. Okay, one more point. 
the love of judgment. We see the lust of approval. We see the life hypocrisy, now the love of judgment. We come to the consequences of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Luke writes in verse 5, And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. God struck him down. And it was pretty obvious it was God, right? There was a lie and then dead. And then not only that, but Sapphira comes and she adds two things. She, she lies too and then immediately dead. Immediately, the text says. Fell down and breathed their last. And what does it tell us in the text? It says, flip back there with me. It's so important to recognize what happened at that point. It says, great fear came over all who heard of it. Verse 5. And then verse 11. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. They knew it was God that did this. And there was fear. Something similar happens in Acts chapter 12 with Herod Agrippa. He, um, he comes out before the people in his splendorous royal apparel. And the people, they're trying to flatter Herod. So they say, the voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. And you know what? Herod didn't stop him from saying that. He let the flattery come. He accepted it. And this is what the text tells us. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. Church, what does the story of Ananias and Sapphira tell you about the sin, the wretchedness of sin, and then the holiness of God? What does the story of Herod tell you about the wretchedness of sin and the holiness of God? I mean, Herod just didn't say anything. He just accepted the praise and didn't rebuke them and say, no, 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 to God be the glory. He didn't say a thing, yet he was struck down for keeping his mouth shut. Well, church, you may be thinking, that's no loving God. You may be thinking that's, that stands alongside the Greek or Roman gods whose cruelty sets them apart. It's light years from the truth. Light years from the truth. God brought judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira because they broke his law and lied to him, and he is holy. Why is this, why is the point called the love of judgment? Why the love of judgment? Does some loving does it? Two things. God did, God did it out of love for himself because he is the supreme one and it's right for him to do it out of love and glory for himself. But second, he did it out of love for his church. The love of saying, sin is that bad. It's, it's this, this point I want you to hear. I want it to resonate in your ears and in your hearts that God is communicating by doing this. Sin is that bad. It's worse than you think. So that you'll run to him. So that you'll run. So that your, your pace will be quickened as you run back to him 
and rest in his gospel and pursue holiness for his glory. He knows what sin does to us. He knows that sin does not bring him the glory he deserves, but that it also is hurtful. It makes us miserable. It keeps us from the thing that satisfies us, which is him. He knows that. So he struck down Ananias and Sapphira. He struck down Herod to say, sin is that bad. Come to me. Come back to me. Don't stay there. Come back and come back faster. Pursue holiness. Pursue me. That's where life is found. That's where joy is found. Joy is not found, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not here saying we pursue holiness and, and therefore we're earning favor with God. No, don't hear me say that. We don't earn God's favor. He loves us as he loves Christ because Christ died in our place. So he sees us through Christ's perfection. Okay, but now God calls us to a life of holiness. He calls us to a life lived to honor him according to his word, by his grace, for his glory. See, church, when... When Christ died for us, he died so that, yes, our past could be taken care of. Our past was dealt with, right? Sin was paid for. But don't belittle the cross by thinking that somehow the cross only deals with our past. It does not. It gives us a future, right, in heaven, at home, with our Savior, but it gives us a present where we pursue holiness, and as we pursue holiness, we know his glory and his joy. We know who he is, and as we know who he is, and we stare into his glory that's in the word of God, then we have satisfaction. Do not belittle the cross by thinking, okay, yes, I'm saved from sin. My past has been dealt with. Now we're saved to something as well. We're saved to holiness. And as we're saved to holiness, that means that we can truly have life abundant, and not just in the future in heaven, but now, as we seek him, as we know him, as we serve him, by his grace and for his glory. Don't be tempted to think, all they did was lie. Whenever we sin, think, I'm just, just defamed. I just, I just spit in the face of my God to, who saved me. Did everything necessary for me to come to him and to know salvation. Listen to this. And we'll close here. Turn with me to Matthew 5 8. Why is this so loving? We're about to find out. Why is it so loving for God to show us how awful sin is? Why is that love? Because of this. The Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Replace that with holy. It doesn't mean perfect. It means heading in the right direction. Right? heading toward more obedience and more Christ-likeness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, if we are running hard and fast after sin, then we aren't 
pursuing purity. We're not pursuing holiness. And then what happens? We don't see God for all that he is. We don't see his beauty. We don't see his attributes. We don't see his gospel clearly. Whenever we are pursuing sin, it's blocking us from enjoying God. You get that? You don't, and, because when you don't see God for who he truly is, then you're not going to enjoy him. You're not going to rest in him. You're not going to be passionate about him. Okay, so you need to pursue holiness by God's grace and for God's glory so that you can see God. And when you see God for what he is, then you will erupt in joy and in praise. So God is saying sin is that bad so that we will run from sin. As we run from sin, then we can see him for all that he is for us in Jesus Christ. And when we see that, we are satisfied. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed means divinely happy. And then that scene will be perfect, without hindrance, without sin one day in the future, in our home with him. Oh, church, this is so glorious. Think about it. All the times, all the times when you see in the scriptures um, God condemning sin and God doing, um, God judging sin in the scriptures, you think that's harsh. It's not, it's loving. Think about the prophets, right? You get into the prophets and, and you think, man, I don't know if I can read Jeremiah anymore, you know? I mean, it's just warning after warning, rebuke after rebuke, and, and God's promising this destruction and everything. It's, it's sad. But when you think about the reason why God's doing it, it is loving because all those warnings, all those rebukes were meant to get them to run from sin. You know what would be unloving? Is if God said nothing at all, right? If he didn't warn them, if he didn't rebuke them, he was telling them, get back to me, repent, come to me. I'm who you need. And so all the times when you see the rebuke and the, and the seeming harshness, think that's God's love. It would be unloving if he said nothing at all and just let us go. And that's what happens in Romans 1, right? The, there's more and more judgment. He, I mean, we don't want that. We don't want God to just not say anything at all. That's, that's another form of judgment. And it gets to that point in Romans chapter 1. So when, whenever we hear God warning us, we should think, God is warning me because of his love for me. Let me get back to him. Let me run back to Jesus, the one who saved me, the one who loves me, the one in whom God sees me as righteous, who has made me a member of his family, his forever family. God shows us the wretchedness of sin so that we will see the gloriousness of the gospel and the gloriousness of his holiness and his being and all of his promises. Let's pray. Gracious God, oh, how we need to hear this. Thank you for telling us how bad sin is. Help us to see how beautiful Christ is. Lord, do not let us be content in our sin. Do not let us be indifferent about our sin, apathetic about it. But may we hate it as you hate it. May we despise it the way you despise it so that we come back to you, God drink deeply of the waters of life. Thank you, God, that you warn us. 
Thank you, God, that you show us the depth of our sin so we can know the height of Christ's sacrifice. Let's pray this all in Jesus' name.